Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. We are a little late this week, but I hope that you'll agree this episode was worth the wait. My name is Jessica Kale, and I've always been interested in the history of sex work. It is something that has come up in my books a lot, and I want to do justice to it on this podcast. But when it comes to the history of sex work, one of the first people I think of is Caitlin Bailey, host of the Oldest Profession podcast. Guys, if you like Dirty Sexy History, you will also love Caitlin's podcast. And it is my absolute pleasure to introduce you to Caitlin today. This conversation is a little shorter than usual, but we cover a lot of important ground. And I know that you'll agree that Caitlin knocks it out of the park. This week, we are talking about the American plan, something we also discussed with Hugh Ryan last season, as well as the Mann Act, the Comstock Act, anti-human trafficking laws, and the truly horrific and surprisingly recent history of venereal disease in the United States. This history is so important, and I think you're going to love it. Without further delay, here's my conversation with Caitlin Bailey. All right, everybody. My guest today is comedian and sex worker rights advocate, Caitlin Bailey, who is also the host of the Oldest Profession podcast, which looks at sex work throughout history. Caitlin, I am such a big fan, and it is such an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a delight to be here. So your podcast covers so much important history, and one thing that tends to come up uh, when looking at the history of sex work in the United States is the American plan. So yes. just a very brief, what was the American plan? What are we talking about today? So yeah, the the American plan was actually the uh, largest quarantine effort in the United States history, and it started at, during World War One as a way of cracking down on venereal disease or trying to reduce STIs. And what it effectively did was empowered law enforcement officers to detain and arrest any woman on the suspicion of not just prostitution, but promiscuity, subjecting those women to non-consensual, you know, uh, STI checks, um, and then often sentencing them to ineffective treatments in these lock hospitals, imprisoning uh, women for being too promiscuous in the eyes of the law as a way of protecting our soldiers um, from STIs. And I think it's important for listeners to understand that the core arguments behind this law are still very much on the books. It's only the interpretation of these laws that have changed. Oh, it's absolutely wild to consider. The the suspicion of promiscuity, I mean, that mm-hmm. could be any of us. Correct. And it was uh, at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of of women. Um, The incredible historian Scott Stern wrote a book called The Trials of Nina McCall that really chronicles this history. And it does an excellent job. But so many of these records have been lost and not enough people know about this very long, very dark chapter um, in our country's history. Oh, my goodness. 
So for context, let's look briefly at the broader history of sex work in the United States leading up until this point. Now, it wasn't always as stigmatized as it became in the 20th century, was it? Sure. No. Uh, sex workers actually settled this country, um, as we have so many places. We are often, you know, the first to arrive um, in ports. It's certainly true as, you know, the United States expanded westward. Uh, brothel owners and their occupants were often some of the largest uh, landowners in towns. We built uh, schools and hospitals and uh, invested in communities. And so um, brothels historically have been sites where there's a lot of like cultural innovation. Um, you know, it was sex workers that often started the first libraries and some of these like far out outposts. So I think sex workers deserve a lot of credit uh, and have always been a part of literally every community for all of human history, but especially here in the U.S., which was, you know, as we uh, as we colonized westward, you know, the some of the first white women to arrive um, were sex workers. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You you don't get the history of the United States without the history of sex work. They're just really tied up together. Yeah, absolutely. And we're a little bit like like piracy in that way, you know, definitely an important an important ingredient um, of, uh, you know, entrepreneurs and, and edge people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and too often overlooked. So in your wonderful episode on January 25th in San Francisco, you talked about authorities cracking down on sex work in the wake of the mm -hmm. Comstock Act. Mm -hmm. So what was the Comstock Act and how did it affect the lives of sex workers in this country? Yeah, I actually want to sort of separate out those those events because they um, they were very different and they sort of resulted in different things. The, um, so I think it's important to remember that prostitution was not criminalized um, or aggressively enforced in this country really until the 19th century. Um, and the first, you know, federal anti-prostitution law is also our first anti-immigration law. That's the Page Act of 1870, which specifically barred um, Asian women, they used a racist term, I'm not going to repeat here, uh, from immigrating to the United States for immoral purposes. And you see that language used again in 1910 with the Mann Act or the White Slave Law, which made it illegal to transport women across state lines for immoral purposes. And it's the white slave panic that really leads to the closure of brothels, which is what these incredible and brave women were pushing back against in 1917 when they staged, uh, you know, one of the earliest. Uh, it's hard to talk about. There are no firsts uh, in sex worker history because it's the oldest profession. So there are older examples of pushing back um, against stigma and unjust laws. But in San Francisco on January 25th, 1917, 300 women led by two madams confronted a moral reformer who had made it his mission to try to close the brothels and fashioned himself as like, you know, a warrior against white slavers. He really reminds me of the guy behind the um that movie that just came out, The Sound of Freedom, um like yes. sending in SWAT teams, right, to like ostensibly rescue children um at gunpoint uh from from captors but not from like the youth ministers that are doing the majority <laughs> of the actual sexual assault. Very similar situation um in the in the 19th century and this moral reformer much like this guy today went on to have an incredibly lucrative career at, you know, as a public speaker. He actually funded one of the first religiously funded moving pictures in this country's history, um, lauding himself as a hero of the white slave movement. But these these sex workers called him to task and said, hello, sir, 
Um, I hear that you would like to help uh, desperate women get out of a desperate situation. We are working mothers, and we would like to hear some of your solutions about how to make our lives easier because evicting us from our homes, the places that we live and work, is not going to help. Uh, and he was like many folks in the anti-trafficking movement today, uh, dumbstruck uh, by the very, from the reality that reducing people's purchasing power, reducing their freedom of movement uh, does not lead to less exploitation. Many of the women who participated in that protest, their story has been lost to history, uh, but we unfortunately know too much uh, about the guy that they were protesting because he went on to have a very well-documented and lucrative career. Um, he did succeed in shutting down the brothels in San Francisco on uh, Valentine's Day, which was less than a month later. But the Comstock Act was actually our first federal anti-obscenity law, mm -hmm. and that was passed in the 1870s by Anthony Comstock, and he made it illegal for people to, uh, you know, to um, use the U.S. mail um, to disseminate information about contraception, which he conflated with obscenity. So I think that's really important because we see a very similar thing today where laws that, you know, like ostensibly feminist thinkers stand behind as like pornography and prostitution has become a symbol of exploitation against women. And so they want to, you know, erase erotic content. But in so doing, they also erase information about contraception, medically accurate sex education. And it really pushes people, especially women, especially queer folks, further into the dark. And so Anthony Comstock built his career um, attacking Victoria Woodhall, who was this incredible figure. Uh, we we have a three-part series on her. She was the first woman to own a brokerage firm on Wall Street, the first woman to address Congress on the issue of suffrage, and the first woman to run for president. Uh, she was also a sex worker, which is why many folks haven't heard of her. But Anthony Comstock, you know, demonized her in public and, and used the sort of public hatred against her to pass the Comstock Act, which really denied generations of women access to contraception, information about abortion. And it was those laws and Comstock as an individual who actually famously went on to uh, prosecute Margaret Sanger, um, who started Planned Parenthood. So the history of contraception and pornography and prostitution and the way that the criminalization of those things has always led to reducing women's ability to freely access public spaces, um, travel without being accosted uh, or detained, or really lead free and independent lives has always been deeply connected. Mm, yes, absolutely. Now, that is some uh, very important context, and I'm so glad you're able to explain that. Now, this is going to lead us up to the American plan. Mm -hmm. Now, this is something that happened around World War One. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about what was going on at this time and and who was affected by it? Sure. I mean, sex workers and soldiers have, of course, a, a long history that spans back thousands and thousands of years. And generals and military leaders have always been concerned about the prevalence of STIs amongst their troops, right? You know, um, in terms of fighting power, you know, syphilis has maybe done um, as much uh, to reduce soldiers' ability to soldier as, uh, you know, uh, as what happens on the battlefield or other kinds of infectious or foodborne diseases. So it's always been... 
um, a strategic concern. But in 1917, uh, which is when the United States got involved in World War One, we copied um, a plan from the British. Uh, the British called it the Contagious Diseases Acts, and we called it uh, the American Plan because we're not very imaginative. But what it effectively did, um, and it started with the Chamberlain-Khan Act uh, of 1917 in the U.S. Congress, and it allotted um, a million dollars and the uh, power for, at first, military officials to detain women within a five-mile radius of any military base who were suspected of prostitution or could reasonably be suspected of carrying an STI. So these are women who are perceived as immoral. Of course, this is Black, Brown, Indigenous, immigrant women, first and foremost. Of course, this is poor women. But it's also women who talk back or make the wrong kind of eye contact with a police officer who are seen walking or eating or, God forbid, commuting to work alone. And so tens of thousands of women um, are detained in the first year. Then the U.S. Army um, or, or the military, it's, look, probably the Navy was involved also, but the, the military does a study on STIs and finds infuriatingly that the overwhelming majority of infections are happening not at brothels, which they were suspected, but rather from soldiers carrying venereal disease home to their hometown girlfriends. Mm -hmm. So rather than abandon this plan as ineffective, they expand it. And so the you know district attorney writes a letter to every other state district attorney in the country asking them to write copycat laws. And so in a very short period of time, by 1919, every state in the union has laws empowering law enforcement to detain uh, women suspected of promiscuity, subjecting them to these very invasive venereal tests that were not hygienic. Uh, there are several reports of women uh, going in not infected, but being inserted with an infected speculum, uh, getting an STI actually from uh, the exam. Um, and then also, I think it's important to remind our listeners that we were not very far along um, in our understanding of venereal disease at this time. Uh, it is we are decades away from being able to treat uh, syphilis or gonorrhea with penicillin. Um, and we are still a long way off from many doctors even being able to see or tell the difference between syphilis or gonorrhea. So we're subjecting these women to these terribly invasive and not especially accurate exams which means that the doctors, overwhelmingly male, uh, who are being taught uh, misogyny, they are being taught in medical school that women and not men are vectors of disease, um, they're you know subjected to these humiliating exams. And if the police officer or the doctor thinks that you are too immoral, you could be detained um, and often, quote unquote, treated uh which means being injected with mercury and arsenic and the ramifications and the, you know, side effects of these treatments are horrific. Not only are you not treating or effectively curing the STI, but people's hair and teeth starts to fall out. Um, it, these are literal poisons uh, that you're injecting women into in these terrible conditions, right? These are these are prisons. They're called lock hospitals. They're called institutions. But there are so many reports of riots and escape attempts. One woman actually threw herself to her death uh, trying to escape one of these facilities. And so 
they are prisons. Uh, there is one woman um, who in 1942, in the midst of World War II, described them as concentration camps, deliberately invoking, uh, you know, what was happening to uh, to Jews in Germany um, and also here in the U.S. to Japanese with the uh, Japanese internment camps. And so I think it's difficult to overstate uh, the impact and sexism um, and uh, and horror uh, of of these laws and how they impacted the lives of too many women for decades. Oh my God. It's absolutely horrific to contemplate. And and of course to blame it all on women and, and not the men who are passing it around. Yeah, no, it's it's actually disgusting if you read um there are accounts in uh in newspapers and actually in medical textbooks that um, you know, before getting married people would have to get venereal disease checks. And so women uh, who were found to be infectious were sent, of course, to these lock hospitals. Uh, but men who were found to be showing signs of venereal disease would be given a shot of mercury so that they could perform sexually on their wedding night uh, with no no need for containment or control. Oh, my God. What's also uh, infuriating about this is how ready the U.S. government and congressmen and serious thinkers in the public health world were ready to sacrifice the already pretty limited uh, freedom of movement of women in order to control venereal disease, where there was absolutely zero appetite in giving soldiers condoms or educating enlisted men on how to reduce venereal disease. Uh, they blamed sex workers. Sex workers were scapegoated. And even and, and uh, the scope of this law very quickly expanded from being focused on sex workers who were operating in, in the brothels that were in the process of being closed to any woman suspected of promiscuity. Wow, it's absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. It's such a dark chapter in our history that not a lot of people know about it. Yeah. And these these laws were be so uh these laws were aggressively enforced really in phases. So you have, you know, World War One, um, where where there's a lot of attention and energy behind enforcing these laws. There's also a lot of um budget uh, and allocation as part of the war effort. Um, and then you see a little bit of a lull before the resurgence during World War II, where at least now you have penicillin as a more effective treatment. But women are still being um arrested, detained, and subjected to these horrific exams into the 1960s and 70s. And in fact, uh, Margot St. James, who founded one of the first sex worker-led um, organizations in this country, Coyote, uh, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, started her career as a sex worker rights advocate because she was um, unfairly, unjustly arrested for prostitution. Um, she claimed until she uh, until her death uh that she was not doing prostitution at the time she was just a party girl uh in San Francisco but caught up in this you know the, the, these laws um you know enabled people to arrest people for promiscuity which um but she was subjected to this venereal disease in like 1967 or something like that and so she fought and was responsible for helping to overturn that law in San Francisco which was one of the first victories of the organization. But then you you saw a resurgence of these laws during the HIV AIDS epidemic and sort of gay panic that happens after that. Um, and again, these laws are, are still on the books. Um, so I think it's important for folks to 
uh, understand how quickly um, we can backslide into a society that feels comfortable um, snatching women out of their daily life, uh, subjecting them to horrific and invasive exams and uh, quarantining them based on, uh, yeah, the the whims of, of moralizers. It's just horrible to think about, isn't it? Well, we think about, you know, like morality police as being something that happens over there or to other people. But I think it's really important for us to grapple with and acknowledge our own history on this issue and the widespread implications. So what were the the lasting effects of the American plan? We're talking about, of course, the, the women who went through that, but then also, you know, like in a in a broader sense, how did it impact the country? Sure. So the first thing that happens is uh, you end up shutting down the brothels. So the white slave panic um, and that culminates with the the Mann Act or the white slave law of 1910 really captures the mood of the country and this narrative that all people who are engaged in any kind of sex work are doing so um, as victims, right? And so it's that sort of prevailing myth that leads to the criminalization of women moving across state lines. And just like many anti-trafficking laws today, we did not rescue many sex slaves. We did not save many women from a life of prostitution. We did, however, um, arrest a lot of consensual interracial couples, and we inconvenienced a lot of chorus girls on their way to their next gig. And it made it really difficult for women uh, traveling alone uh, or unmarried women traveling in a group to move freely. But that law didn't shut down the brothels. That doesn't happen until 1917. And it's the energy of the American plan and this concern about contagious diseases that really lends the uh, the the necessary political will, as it were, to shut down the brothels. As I said at the beginning of the episode, brothels are a place where Women entrepreneurs are thriving. Artistic communities are thriving. They are a place for victims of domestic violence to go. And they are often a, a, a physical place um, that is, you know, is a gathering place for powerful folks. But women are really have a lot of social capital um, in these spaces. And so the shutting down of the brothels pushed the entire sex industry further underground into the hands of cab drivers and concierges. This is where you really see the emergence of like the pimp figure in the sex work economy because it suddenly becomes very dangerous for women to be out and about alone soliciting clients. And it's because of the American plan that they are facing possible arrest for occupying public space. So they have to enlist a man to go and procure clients for them. And that creates opportunities for exploitation, right? Which, you know, and so um, 1917, you shut down the brothels, you push the entire sex industry further underground, you take things out of the hands of madams, and you put them sort of into the hands of pimps. And for decades, sex workers have to operate um, in this clandestine way. We can't report crimes committed against us. We can't tell um, our doctors the truth about our profession. There, We cannot access the basic building blocks that we need to move our lives forward all as a direct result of the criminalization and the potential incarceration that we might face uh, if we were able to, if we were to reveal um, what we were doing. 
And that's the real harm of criminalization. We know what prohibition does to markets. Uh, it does not make them safer. And just one more point. The closure of brothels happened in different places at different times, right? It happens in San Francisco, as we mentioned, in 1917. It doesn't happen um, in Fairbanks, Alaska until, you know, the 1950s or 1960s. But everywhere we see the shuttering of brothels, you see a huge and immediate spike in STIs, taking sex work out of the control of sex workers themselves and pushing it further into the black market reduces our ability to self-advocate, It reduces our ability to take care of ourselves, and it increases venereal disease everywhere it happens. Mm. Yes. Wow. Well said. Now, you've kind of already answered this for me, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more. So uh, we like to think that we've moved past the history of lock hospitals and these terrible abuses, which we also talked about briefly in our episode with Hugh Ryan. Uh, but of course, this history, it's its all too real for people today. This is still going on. This is current. Mm -hmm. So why do sex workers need advocacy now? And what can our listeners do to help? I think that sex workers... Um, Sex workers have been advocating for the decriminalization of sex work for decades now. Um, and we do that because decriminalization is the only policy that reduces violence and increases our ability to advocate for our safety and our health. And when sex workers are safe, everyone is safe. You know, it's not um, an accident that serial killers and predators target sex workers, but our vulnerability is a direct result of the criminalization and the stigma that we face. And so I would really encourage listeners to educate themselves on what sex workers have been asking for for decades. You know, Margot St. James founded Coyote in 1973. The first World Whores Congress was in 1986. We have been speaking with one united voice for a very long time that arresting us, arresting our clients, arresting our landlords and the people that we hire to keep um, ourselves safe will not result uh, in decreasing um, demand for prostitution. And it certainly won't increase our safety and health. Um, and I think it's really important, too, as we, you know, are sort of marching forward in the aftermath of widespread criminalized abortion in this country, um, increasing uh, controls around pornography and also access to information about queer communities, self-managed abortion care, contraception, understanding that these histories are inter intertwined. Um, and that you cannot create a free future where people of all genders can thrive if you focus on trying to eradicate, contain, and control the oldest profession. Absolutely. So why is it so important that we study the history of sex work? I think there's a lot to be learned. You know, um, smart people get, let's call it silly, um, on this issue. Uh, you know, there are very well-meaning people who believe that prostitution is synonymous with exploitation and as a result of that focus their efforts more on eradicating prostitution than on eradicating exploitation. But of course, people are often violently exploited 
across labor sectors in domestic labor, agriculture, uh, manufacturing. Um, there are so many examples. Right now in this country, we have 12 and 13-year-old kids who are working graveyard shifts at slaughterhouses under horrific conditions that is an example of horrific exploitation. But instead of focusing on those issues, we continue to invest in vice departments that stage these elaborate raids on massage parlors or other consensual adults who are engaged in consensual sexual activity. Um, you know, I think the most recent case, um, or not most recent, but a, a noteworthy case that happened relatively recently um, is when, you know, Robert Kraft, who is the owner of the uh, New England Patriots, was caught up in a massage parlor sting where five different law enforcement agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, spent six months watching uh, these hidden cameras in massage parlors uh, recording what I can only imagine to be the world's most boring porn. Um, and they, you know, in the aftermath of these raids, threw themselves press conferences, lauding themselves as heroes for cracking down on sex slavery. But the youngest uh, person involved um, was a 35-year-old. Like, I mean, Robert Kraft himself received um, an aggressively consensual handjob uh, from a 45-year-old woman who is a legally licensed masseur in the state of Florida. This is just... There was no evidence of exploitation or violence or even unlicensed workers. And when the dust settled, as it so often does, the only people who were facing criminal charges were the women who had been arrested or ostensibly rescued by these law enforcement officers. So I think it's really important for listeners to understand the gap between what law enforcement says they're doing which is cracking down on predators and what they're actually doing, which is arresting, um, often detaining, and too often sexually assaulting some of the most vulnerable women. Mm, yes, absolutely. Now, you talked a little bit about uh, the sort of human trafficking panic around the Mann Act. Now, how similar is that to what's going on today, and how is it different? Um, it's very similar. I think that the racial element um, is there, although uh, it, it it is not as explicit, um, but it's very much still present in the, the mythology around what human trafficking is, who engages in it, and who is who is a victim. Um, you know, the, the white slave panic um, of 1910 was really the direct result of, you know, the aftermath of uh, the, the Jim Crow laws and, you know, the uh, uh, the discomfort that many white Americans had with black people and immigrants um, becoming members of society. Right. And so uh, there was this very well documented sort of white backlash and the Mann Act and the Jim Crow laws and white flight were very much a part of that. But the narrative was that black and immigrant men were coming and victimizing white women. And that is still the narrative of the human trafficking panic that we have. And you see it really with the messaging um, from Republicans, right, conflating human trafficking with immigrants coming to this country and talking about like the wall and, um, you know, border security as being anti-trafficking, which is very ironic given that we have very well-documented systemic examples of children 
being trafficked as a direct result of being separated from their parents and sent to these detention centers and sent to this like deeply broken uh you know system that we have where we you know are criminalizing people for surviving so we again absolutely are surrounded by examples of horrific exploitation it just doesn't look like a stranger in a van pulling up to like a kmart kidnapping your child on their way to soccer practice that that is not what sex trafficking looks like there is sexual exploitation happening in communities there are youth pastors to say nothing of the well-documented history of the catholic church you know we keep seeing examples of powerful men who are already embedded in our communities doing horrific violence to their families to people that they have access to what we don't see a lot of examples of are immigrants or outsiders or drag queens coming into communities in order to victimize children. And so the similarities from 1910 to today is that we really want to scapegoat somebody from outside of our community rather than looking at the systemic issues that are happening inside of our own homes. Yes. Yeah. Well said. So tell us a little bit about your podcast and your work with old pros. Sure. Um, so I host the Oldest Profession podcast, where every episode we do a deep dive on into a different sex worker from history. We span um, all kinds of places, all kinds of times, from you know the temples of Ishtar in ancient uh, Mesopotamia to you know uh, the temples of Tlazolteotl in Mesoamerica, um, all the way today. We cover figures like Margot St. James. Um, like Carol Lee. Uh, we do have episodes about the American plan and the Comstock Act coming out in season five, but um, I've been obsessed with sex workers in history for a really long time, and I made a podcast about it. So <laughs> that's uh, that's the story behind the Oldest Profession podcast. Um, it has evolved into a nonprofit media and advocacy organization called Old Pros, where our mission is to create the conditions to change the status of sex workers in society. And I believe that our history and reclaiming our legacy and reminding people that sex workers have always been valuable, integral contributors to the communities that they've been a part of, literally for all of human history, is a part of uh, changing and reclaiming our status. Fantastic. So where can we find out more about you and your work? Yeah, you can check us out at oldprosonline.org. You can also follow us on Instagram at oldprosonline. Uh, we're also on Twitter. I really encourage folks to join our mailing list. We send out a newsletter every Friday. That's a roundup of sex worker rights related news. It's where we announce new episodes. And I am also touring uh, my one woman show. Uh, which is called Whore's Eye View and is a mad dash through 10,000 years of history from a sex worker's perspective. Um, and so we'll be announcing dates and hopefully coming to a city new near you. And you can find out all about that by getting on our newsletter list and staying in the know like an old pro. Fantastic. Well, we will absolutely do that. Caitlin Bailey, I cannot thank you enough. You're fantastic. Thank you, thank you so much for having me and letting me nerd out about my favorite topic. Uh, well, I really appreciate it. You're always welcome. We'd love to have you back. Thank you. Once again, I'd like to thank Caitlin Bailey for being our guest this week. 
She is the host of the Oldest Profession podcast, and you can find out more about her and her important work at oldprosonline.org. I'd also like to thank our superstar patrons on Patreon who make this podcast possible. A huge thank you to Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, Alexis Diamond, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram as well. You can check out our website at dirtysexyhistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there and we're adding new articles all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.